This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Technology that makes guns smarter is of real interest to the president. In a statement yesterday announcing a series of gun-related executive orders, Mr. Obama directed the government to research smart guns to get them onto the market faster. This is essentially the idea of using fingerprints or some other kind of identifier to unlock a gun. If we can set it up so you can't unlock your phone unless you got the right fingerprint... Why can't we do the same thing for our guns? Among those working on this technology is Boulder 18-year-old Kai Klepfer. He's taking the year off between high school and college at MIT to continue his work developing a smart gun. His design landed him a grand prize in the Intel International Science Fair. Klepfer also got a $50,000 grant from a smart gun and firearm safety foundation called Smart Tech. And a Kai welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. What was your reaction to the president's announcement Tuesday? It it was incredible. I'm really happy that the White House has decided to take a stand and actually put some effort and everything behind this issue. It's something that the president has mentioned previously during his two terms, but we haven't actually seen a lot of movement from the government, um, from the DOJ around it. And so it's incredible that we're, we're really getting some traction around, around an important issue like this. DOJ, the Department of Justice, tell us about the technology you're developing, how it works briefly. My smart gun that I'm developing uses a fingerprint sensor that's built into the grip of the firearm. When the user picks it up normally, the firearm reads their fingerprint, and if they're the owner or somebody the owner has chosen, then it functions normally. No additional steps or anything like that required. But if they're a young child, a teenager, or even someone who's disarmed a police officer, then the gun is completely locked and unusable. How many uh, profiles could one gun have? It's theoretically unlimited, but the more people you add, the less secure the gun becomes. So we recommend probably less than 100. Would this delay uh, how long it would take to fire the gun? So... There's about a half a second to a second delay from when your finger touches the sensor on the gun to when it's able to fire. However, it's pretty easy to mitigate that delay because especially for quick draw situations that, you know, a law enforcement officer might find themselves in, you can put your hand on your gun while it's still in your holster and have it recognize and unlock before you've even drawn your firearm. How far along are you with the development of this? I've been working on this project for about three years now, and currently I'm at a late working prototype stage. The next sort of major phase in development for me is to take my design for this locking fingerprint mechanism and move it to an actual metal firearm. Um, I'm doing some fundraising around that, and I'm basically working with a team of engineers to, again, move that design to a metal firearm. Any kind of gun? Right now I'm working with a... Beretta semi-automatic handgun, but it would be applicable to basically any type of firearm from, you know, small handguns all the way up to, you know, assault rifles. What got you interested in this? I really started working on this project after the Aurora Theater shooting, and it was something that really struck in my heart as something we need to change, something that's not right about our society. I started doing research around mass shootings and everything like that, when I realized that accidental deaths, you know, children finding guns, teenagers using them to commit suicide, is significantly larger problem, just by the numbers, than 
any mass shooting that's ever happened or hopefully ever will happen in the United States. Yeah, I want to point out that that, that many acts of mass shooting um, have involved legal firearms, ones that belonged to the shooter. So in that regard, this technology wouldn't necessarily have prevented those. That's completely accurate. And so there are a few specific shootings where technology like this would prevent it, but it has a significantly greater potential for impact where it's somebody who doesn't know what a firearm is or isn't supposed to be using that firearm. Opponents of this sort of technology say that it is not foolproof and that it can be manipulated. What would you say is your technology's Achilles heel? For us, probably the single most important you know, a kink, thing, thing that we're working on getting perfect is the reliability aspect. Having that firearm unlock every single time that the gun owner needs to use it. That is, in many ways, just an engineering challenge. Creating a system that works every time, or at the very least works more often than the firearm that it's attached to. In terms of security risks and things like that, it's almost impossible for somebody else who's not an authorized user to unlock the system and use it. It's like 99.999% effective in that regard. But anyone who's tried to unlock their iPhone, for instance, with their fingerprint knows that it can be um, slow technology sometimes or inaccurate technology. There's a law in New Jersey that mandates smart gun technology if and when such a gun comes to market A German company that has tried to get its technology into the United States has faced roadblocks doing so. And in New Jersey, there are efforts to repeal the law there. Uh, You know, gun owners say that this sort of mandate is an infringement on their right to bear arms. Do you see this technology as a potential restriction, limiting force on the Second Amendment? Not in any way. Fundamentally, I'm against any sort of government mandate, especially like that one in New Jersey. Um, The Senator Loretta Weinberg, who um, actually introduced that law, has has since realized that while the intention behind it was correct, it's actually significantly hampered people like me from developing smart gun technology. Ultimately, this should be a consumer option, something that a gun owner can walk into a gun store and choose a normal Beretta or a Colt or you know, Kai Club for smart gun. You want choice to be fundamental to this. One last question. You're off to MIT in August. Is this something that you hope to perfect while you're there? Definitely. I plan on continuing working on this technology until it's at the point where it's, you know, available in gun stores. Um, and that will likely mean working at MIT, which is in many ways one of the best environments in the world for innovation and, and developing new technology. And I do hope to leverage those resources. What are you studying there? Electrical engineering. Okay, not a surprise. Kai, thanks for (laughs) being with us. Well, thank you very much. Kai Klepfer of Boulder is developing smart gun technology. When we come back, our Zombie Bills series continues with lobbyists who take the long view when it comes to getting legislation passed. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. State lawmakers will be back in session next week, and not everything they'll debate will be new. The legislature will consider bills that have died in the past and come back to life, what are sometimes called zombie bills. (music) 
Zombie bills aren't unusual. Big ideas often take several sessions to work through. And to get some more perspective on this, we've invited two longtime lobbyists onto the program. Becky Brooks is with the Denver firm Steely 2, which she runs with her daughter. And Mike Beasley joins us from Denver's 5280 Strategies. And a welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Before what I imagine is your busy time of year. Yeah. Becky, shed some light on why we see bills die and come back again. What it is about the legislative process that makes that so? Well, there are a couple of different categories that we need to look at there. One of them is that uh, there are certain bills that are introduced every year to uh, make a point uh, and to get a vote from somebody. So those can be used in and other elections and so forth. With the idea that they will never pass, they will never be signed by the governor. With some sort of a certainty that that would happen. But there are also bills that take several sessions in order to get them in such a form that they can pass so that the proponents and the opponents, you know, get together and work things out so that they can finally pass a bill. So it could be, you know, four years or five years that a bill is worked on every year and it changes a little bit every year till they can get it right and get into a form where it can pass. Well, let's get some examples of that. So can either of you think of an example of a bill that has been brought up perhaps perennially? Not because lawmakers think it will pass, but because they want to get a vote on the record or they want to make a point, perhaps, to their constituents. What comes to mind? You know, uh, I agree with Becky. We do we do see that. And I think uh, for me, bills that you might see introduced that might um, lead to an initiative. So if you look in, in our past, we've seen legislation to limit government. Uh, we did an Arvis Galbert amendment that limited state spending revenues in order to offset uh, Doug Bruce's Tabor amendment that passed in the early 90s. So there's a, a an example in the last 25 years where people needed to um, – they wanted to respond in a way to make a statement they were doing something to avoid a ballot initiative. I see. I'm not clear on that. So that's the relationship between the legislature and that's one path to pass a law and the ballot, which is another means to pass a law. Is there some tension there? Well, there is. But, Ryan, let me go back to your question about an example of something that comes up every year. Mike and I were talking about this, and one of the best examples would be the right to work bill. And right to work keeps getting introduced every year. Uh, and sometimes it even gets out of committee or it gets to the floor and everything. And we were uh, reflecting on the fact that years ago, before term limits, we had the chairman of the Senate uh, Business Committee who kept hearing the right to work bill year after year after year. And finally, uh, in the final year, he said uh, when he called the bill up, He said, is there anybody in this audience that is going to testify today that has any different testimony than you've given for the last five years on this same bill? Uh, And if so, raise your hand. And no one raised their hand, at which point he gaveled them to order and said the testimony phase is ended. Now we'll vote on the bill. So That's how common it had become. That's how common it had become. And nobody had changed their arguments about the bill. But it is still one of those that keeps bring get brought up year after year. I think there are zombie bills, and there's also what I call Lazarus bills. 
I mean, those are bills that really do have a life out there. You know, they 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 have a time to get uh, perfected and to get into a format that can be accept, accepted by everybody. So uh, there, there are examples of both of those. Yeah. Well, let's get some examples of Lazarus bills, ones that uh, despite f- having failed in past sessions, finally do succeed. Mike, I'll, I'll say that your clients are varied. Excel Energy, El Paso County, Cherry Creek School Districts. Uh, can you give us an example of a bill that you've lobbied for that has taken several tries? Well, I can give you examples uh, uh in recent time, the persistent drunk driving bill or the enhanced penalties for uh, drunk drivers that was tried for several sessions and ultimately passed in the last year. This is the idea of repeat drunk drivers. That's right. And whether there should be more serious offenses uh, as there are more instances. Mm-hmm. That's right. And uh, that was one that had been tried for several years, died for a mul- multiple reasons. And then finally, I think the public pressure and awareness had grown to a point that the legislature finally did act. Uh, Becky and I are familiar with the legislators who worked on the Charter School Act years ago, uh, where uh, Senator Mickle John finally just said, "Look, I will to Senator Bill Owens at the time. I will will create charter schools and we'll do it. But then I don't want you to hear hear you talk about it for another five years, uh, and we'll see how this experiment goes." And that was over twenty years ago. You talked about public pressure with. Uh, the drunk driving legislation, for instance. How much of your job as a lobbyist is to put pressure on not just lawmakers, but on the public and to get something of a campaign going and discussion started in the public about a particular piece of legislation that perhaps has failed in the past? Well, I think that's what sets us aside from legislators, because I think legislators like the public discussion out there. Uh, not that we don't, but Michael and I are both employed by different entities out there, and it's it's their voice that we try to express at the legislature rather than our own down there. And I think one of the things that make uh, our job or the job of any legislator who wants to do something new or reform some different policy uh, is the fact that we have term limits. And every two years, we see a turnover of somewhere between 20 and 30 percent of the legislature, new folks who generally don't have experience in the state public policy issues. And so we are constantly needing to educate them and to make and put a face on those issues with folks that they represent back at home. Well, this is fascinating because you both have the long view. You've been in legislating or government in in some form since 1987. And as you say, there's a lot of turnover among lawmakers because of term limits. I think some might hear that lobbyists become the brain trust and be very wary of that. That is to say that people who are representing very specific interests and specific viewpoints become the educators of lawmakers. Isn't that something that the public should be a little afraid of, Becky? Well, certainly I don't think it's something the public should be afraid of, but we do have an institutional memory there that is not held by some of the legislators because they're limited in their terms. And so because of that, you have lobbyists and the staff that are really the institutional memory. And part of the issues that we have been addressing are lawmakers that come in and they have a great new idea and it's... Michael and I that say, well, that's been introduced three other times in the last 25 years because other lawmakers have brought that forward. 
and they don't have the institutional memory to know that or to know what the outcome of that was and everything. So we try to share that with them at times. So you have that neutral history of saying that's been tried before. But, Becky, you know, you represent a varied group as well. Prudential, Colorado Corn Growers, the Rio Grande Water Conservation District. When a lawmaker comes to you and says, you know, I, I, I need some perspective, some of the perspective you're sharing, at least, is coming from a specific viewpoint, isn't it? It may be. It may be. And if it is, then that's the first thing I tell that lawmaker is, I will give you my view on this, but you have to know that this is my client and this this is their view on this. But we we have a small community at that state house. I mean, you have a hundred legislators there. You have somewhere between five and seven hundred lobbyists. So it's small town. And so we have friendships there. So we may have friendships or acquaintances that come and say, I'm thinking about this. What do you say? Or what do you think about it? And I can give them that viewpoint if I'm not influenced by a client at all. Uh, Mike Beasley, I want to talk about a point you brought up uh, at the beginning of the conversation, which is the route of going to the ballot. I wonder if you find that your clients, if after they've tried in the legislature multiple times to get a particular piece of legislation passed, if they think, let's just go to the ballot and ask the voters. Is there a preference on, a preference on the route they take? The preference uh, for me and the issues that I work on are always settle those these issues in the legislature. Why? I think that's where more thought can be uh, placed, more discussion can be had, and um, and and I really think that the right to initiate something to the ballot should be the last resort when it's clear there is not a path to pass something in the legislature. Why a last resort, though? You, you see the ballot as something of a blood in, blunt instrument? Or well, I, I, I believe in, in this, you know, representative legislature. Uh, and I believe that we should empower those who we've elect to make these key decisions. I also do support the right to seek relief at the ballot if you can't get there. But I can speak for me and, and most all of our colleagues that, in saying that we would prefer to have the legislature do it. You're nodding yes as well, Becky, I suppose, for similar reasons. I'd like to ask about, um, in particular, if there's a nut that Colorado just hasn't been able to crack. Is there an issue that you see perennially that lawmakers try to reach compromise on but just can't? You know, I can't think of any right this instant on this. The The legislature tries to be a little reflective and at times, as Michael mentioned earlier, tries to address an issue before uh, it's taken to the ballot. And his it, his example of Arviscal Bird was one of the best ones where they said, we know the people want to limit government, to limit spending and everything. So they put a limit on the spending of the government did that, and then we got the Tabor Amendment uh, within uh, two years after that. And they did the same thing with campaign finance reform. They passed legislation that dealt with that after many, many, many tries. And then within four years after that, we got Amendment 41. So their addressing an issue doesn't always preclude the public from coming back and addressing it at the ballot. As well, right? Those aren't mutually exclusive. Well, you mentioned Amendment 41, which was passed in 2006 to put restrictions 
uh, among other things, on the value of gifts and meals that lawmakers can accept. And it was seen as a way to limit any undue influence from lobbyists like yourselves. Has it made a difference in terms of your influence or has it changed your tactics? You know, my view might surprise the folks that are listening. I don't know that lobbyists have been more influential than they are today and almost exclusively because of Amendment 41. They very often we work with each other as lobbyists and bring ideas to the legislature. Um, The communication is more initially on our side in many cases on an issue versus uh, on the legislative side. And I think that uh, is a bad thing. Uh, and the, that you're having fewer conversations. We're having fewer conversations. Which, and the other, I think, and the wor- worse than all of that, in my mind, is the fact that legislators don't really have an opportunity to talk and know themselves, get to know each other. So there isn't that reception uh, in the evening uh, by a by Group A where legislators got to know each other. That those opportunities to get to know each other does not exist. And again, I this is overlaid on term limits with such high turnover. Very briefly, Becky. That combined with the fact that every time we go through a new redistricting or reapportionment out there, you get more and more urban legislators, Mm -hmm. less rural uh, legislators. So now at 5 o'clock when the committees are over with, if they're over with there, everybody goes home. As you had more and more rural legislators who stayed in Denver and socialized during the evening hours, they got to know each other. And there is very little of that that goes on. Thanks to both of you for being with us. Thank you. It's Becky Brooks, president of Steely 2, and Mike Beasley, founder of 5280 Strategies. They have both worked as lobbyists in Colorado for more than two decades. The state legislature reconvenes Wednesday. You can hear lawmakers talk about their zombie or Lazarus bills at CPRnews.org. Next week also brings our regular conversation with the governor, and we'd like your questions for him. Email them to us, news at CPR.org. That's news at CPR.org for your gubernatorial questions. And we'll be right back. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Given how dry it is here, you often hear how important it is to drink plenty of water. But for some immigrants, that message doesn't resonate because they may come from a place where the water isn't safe. But failing to drink water here can lead to health problems, as CPR health reporter John Daly explains. At a downtown Denver clinic, a skinny seven-year-old with straight black hair is getting a pair of fillings. Dr. Patty Braun is a pediatrician and oral health specialist at Denver Health. She talks to the girl about what she drinks. So I spend a lot of time teaching my families that water is safe to drink, that Denver tap water is safe. That lesson matters for two reasons. If the kids don't drink tap water, they don't get the fluoride in it to protect their teeth. Second, instead of tap water, many of them gulp down sugary drinks or milk, a double whammy that can mean more cavities and weight gain. Still, Braun says, most of the Latino families she sees don't drink tap water. Over half. And over half of kindergartners have cavities, and Latino kids are more likely to have cavities than non-Latino kids. She says in some cases the tap water stigma has been passed on through generations in a family. In others, recent immigrants hesitate to drink it based on prior experience. If you're used to living in a place where you normally would not want to drink the water because it is not safe, then that's what you're going to bring over to any other new setting that you live in. 
Now there's a collaborative campaign aimed at letting Latinos know the tap water is safe and clean. The Delta Dental of Colorado Foundation is partnering with a community group called Westwood Unidos to get the word out. Jessica Mahaffey is getting involved. She's with the state's largest water provider, Denver Water. It was a surprising revelation to us, but once we discovered that these concerns existed, we felt a a strong responsibility to go out and to communicate otherwise. This fall, Mahaffey led a tour of the utility's infrastructure for about 40 people from the largely Hispanic Westwood neighborhood. The group included leaders, pastors, and educators, or as Mahaffey calls them, influencers. She says they'd heard about rumors that they've had within their community that the water was unsafe to drink. Many of them boil the tap water or buy bottled water. And so they just had a lot of concerns and a lot of questions about the quality and safety of their water. Mahaffey showed the group the reservoir at Waterton Canyon, filled by melting mountain snow. She then took them to a water treatment plant so they could see how the water is filtered and tested. Sometimes it's much easier to show than it is to tell. She hopes those influencers are now back in their community telling people that the tap water here is safe to drink. Westwood resident Gabby Medina had a change of heart. Like a lot of her neighbors, she didn't trust the water when she immigrated to the U.S. from Mexico more than a decade ago. Initially, yes. I was hesitant. Yeah, very honestly, I didn't have a lot of faith. But she says she started experimenting, trying the tap water. Then her dentist suggested she encourage her kids to drink it, saying it would be good for their teeth. Now she's a full-on tap water convert. In fact, she's spreading the tap water message in schools and churches around her community as a promotora, a health educator with the Cavities Get Around campaign. That really gives me a lot of good feeling and pride. At Medina's home in Westwood, her husband Ricardo helps their two kids with their math. Medina leads me to the kitchen to show me a large glass water dispenser that she now brings to community events. She fills it with tap water and slices of fruit. That water has now replaced the kind of sugary beverage that used to be served. Medina's daughter, 10-year-old Andrea, now does the same thing when she goes to school. I squeeze the lemon in the water. She shows me her water bottle with a slice of citrus in it. And she says the idea is catching on. My friends started taking them. Your friends started to do the same thing? Yes. Andrea's 11-year-old brother, Greg, says since his mom started working on what he calls the water thing, his fears about tap water have changed. Um, It comes fresh from the mountains, and it's also um, refreshing. It's not um, poisoned or anything. Now, like his sister, he veers away from sugary drinks. But now I drink water more often than any other drink Public health advocates hope they pass that message on. I'm John Daly, Colorado Public Radio News. There is one caveat to drinking tap water in Denver. Some homes built before the mid-1950s have lead pipes. Denver Water advises that you run tap water until it runs cold to flush any water from the pipes that may contain lead. Before Vale and Aspen and Telluride, there was Meadow Mountain, Little Annie, and Lizard Head Pass. They are among 140 or so defunct ski areas in the state. And their stories are collected in a new book, Lost Ski Areas of Colorado's Central and Southern Mountains. 
Husband and wife history buffs Karen and Peter Bodie live in Littleton. And uh, thanks to both of you for being with us again. Thanks, Thanks. Ryan. Thanks for having us here. Uh, Karen, this book is part guide, part history book. Um, These ski areas were located, we should say, all over the state back in the early to mid-1900s. What were they like? Paint a picture. Well, these ski areas were bare bones, as you'd say. Um, The community started out with just finding a hill and clearing it and walking up and skiing down. And they were located in many small communities all over the state. But um, in central and southern Colorado, the miners... Uh, really started skiing early in the uh, late 1800s, and they even started having uh, competitions on the hills they found. And this grew in a way out of necessity for them, right? Because they would use long wood skis, then called Norwegian snowshoes, just as a means of getting around. And That's then I, correct. I, then um, I suppose the fun came afterwards. They were hardworking people, and they were wanting to uh, ski and have fun, too. So they worked hard at having fun as well. I am trying to imagine what it was like to ski at these places, Peter. Uh, I I guess it was just people doing the same run over and over and over again. <laughs> well, the first ones, and, and, and we're going back to the early 1900s. I mean, uh, the teens and 20s, the skis were long, straight. You couldn't turn. So it was all about uh, skiing in a straight line. And ski jumping was like the X game. I mean, ski jumping was popular. And there were ski jumps all over the place. And then it wasn't what we think of as alpine skiing didn't come until the 30s. Got it. And uh, and so there's this sort of progression to to bigger areas. And then you need a rope tow and, you know, and then becoming a real ski area eventually. For those who have only used chairlifts, a rope tow is about as basic a way as you can get up a ski hill without having to actually climb yourself. Uh, Let's talk about some of the areas you write about in this book. Peter, there were a few on Grand Mesa near Grand Junction. Yeah. um, Early on, they had ski clubs out of Grand Junction and maybe uh, Delta and Montrose. But anyway, people would go up on on the top of the Mesa and ski. And they had cabins. There's old cabins up there, and they'd ski between cabins. Then that became, they started to build, build hill slopes and so there was one called Land's End, and it's just halfway up this spectacular road to the top of the mesa. And the remaining one that's existing now is Powderhorn. Right. But there were earlier versions of Powderhorn, and there were two scarias over on the Cedar Edge side, um, one down pretty low. Um, so back back then, if it snowed, you went skiing. And if it's some of these lower elevations, and if it didn't snow... You didn't go skiing. It wasn't an expectation that you're going to have perfect snow all the time. And is that a reason that many of these smaller ski areas are defunct, that it doesn't snow as consistently there anymore? What are some of the reasons? Some of the reasons were not enough snow. And then also in these little areas, the young people would help out on the hills. And when they grew up, um, they'd want to go to the larger areas or they'd move away. So they lost their workforce. And that was one of the reasons. Um, Also, regulation came in, and uh, they wanted to make the lifts as safe as possible, of course, and so that uh, sometimes they just couldn't afford to make them better, the lifts. I am fascinated by the defunct ski area that is now underwater. Tell us about this. Well, that's one of the best stories in the whole book. Yeah. That's it. Uh, At 
Dillon, Colorado. There's a, there's the old town of Dillon is now under Dillon Reservoir. That's right. And in 1919 and 1920, a guy named Anders Hagen, of course another Norwegian, came and set the world record ski jump uh, there two years in a row. He later became the captain of the U.S. ski team. And at the first Winter Olympics, which was held in Chamonix, France, in 1924. So he was the captain of the team. He was the ski, and, and it was just Nordic events at that time. And he had the longest ski jump in the Olympics that year. But they marked him down for style points because he leaned out over his skis, which is the method that we're Very familiar with. Today. <laughs> but they marked him down on style points. He came in fourth. And 50 years later, um, they were doing research to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the first Winter Olympics. And a, a historian in Norway was actually looking into this, the records and found the, the original judges' cards, discovered an, a mathematical error, and realized that Anders Hagen had actually gotten the bronze medal. So 50 years later, he's in his 80s, they flew him over to um, Norway and, and presented him with his medal. And Anders Hagen made history in Colorado at a place that's now underwater, submarine. Yes, yes. the whole the whole <laughs> ski, maybe the very top of where they started the ski run is a tiny bit above above water now. You know, I don't think of Gunnison as a skiing hotbed by any means, but it was back in the mid nineteen hundreds. What happened in Gunnison? Gunnison started out with uh, just community skiing, and the college was there, and they built us a ski hill called Cupola Hill right on the campus. And that was in the 1930s. And so then they, the young people, especially when they came back from the war, um, students formed a ski team, and it became really big at Western State. And oh. Adams State also had a ski team. So there was a lot of competition. But, uh, but yeah, to... Gunnison, the Western State College, I think it's now university. That's right. Um they were like a national powerhouse. I mean, we think of skiing today as maybe CU Boulder or University of Denver. But back in the 30s and into the 50s and, and maybe beyond that, um, and they would have, you know, people, they were on the circuit for major ski ski teams from colleges all around the United States would come to Gunnison. And they had hills up by Kester Butte. They developed some of their own hills just for, for ski competition. Yeah, which is what, about 15, 20 minutes outside of town? Maybe, yeah. Maybe a little we, more yeah, than maybe that. maybe a half hour north of Gunnison. We are speaking with Karen and Peter Bodie of Littleton, who have written uh, part two of their Lost Ski Areas series. This focuses on Colorado's central and southern mountains. Um, so there were these little ski hills, but during World War II, a lot of them closed. Some people know that a group of soldiers in the war called the 10th Mountain Division uh, you know, it was later instrumental in starting the ski areas that are really popular today. But you found a deeper history around skiing in the 10th Mountain Division. And Karen, I understand you have a family connection to this. That's right. I um, I learned to ski at Loveland when I was five. Okay. And so I, uh, my dad had an ad agency in Denver, and he was the he had had the uh, account for Vail when they opened because he was a World War II vet. Gilbert Fry was his name, and he had fry sales in Denver, and he um, knew all the 10th Mountain guys, and they were pals, and they all loved to ski, and he loved to ski. So um, I skied the first weekend Vale was opened as a six-year-old, and we had passes there. Well, 
um, my dad. Well, yeah, I mean, that was the connection. He was a skier and a World War II vet, so yeah, he got to know these. But the, the kids were all used in all the advertising for Vail. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. So. <laughs> Did you appear in a Vail ad? Yeah, I was in Vail ads. All but right. that's not what I was trying to talk about was uh, the ski areas. Oh, the 10th Mountain guys skied at these little areas. And that's something that I never knew. I never knew the history. There was another history besides the big areas along Interstate 70. Right. In so addition it, to starting Vail, for instance. Yeah. Right. They had a role at these little ski areas. Yes. Well, that's where they got the ideas to make their own ski areas, is by skiing there. Is there any sense that some of these small, area, small areas could ever reopen? Well, we, we've talked about this, that um, with the traffic jams along the I-70 corridor, that, that maybe some of the closer ones, and they were ski areas in Jefferson County and different places. And um, But it's it's probably not too feasible that they would. But you never know because people... People are looking for a different experience, and I think some of the big areas are great, but they're also expensive. So there there are potential, and there are still some community hills around the state. Um, That's right. Name a few. Um, there's um, one outside of Lake City, uh, one in Gunnison called – Craner Hill. Craner Hill, yeah. Craner Hill. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a small area that's not it's – it's a commercial, but it's called Hesperus. There's one in town called Ch- – I think it's Chapman Hill in Durango. Um, Uray has a tiny one. Uray, you go to Uray and you look up 3,000 feet to all these mountains and there's a, there's a little hill that's probably 100 yards long for the kids. So this is not just about history. You can experience it even now. Thanks to both of you for being with us. Karen and Peter Bodie of Littleton have written Lost Ski Areas of Colorado's Central and Southern Mountains. See pictures from the book and learn about some of these lost ski areas at cprnews.org. This is Colorado Matters from Colorado Public Radio. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Morner. Of the 100,000 photos that Robert J. Ross took in Tanzania, there's one image that takes him back. And it's not of a lion or a crocodile. It's of a damselfly as it lands on a fern leaf. The photograph made it into his new book, The Salu in Africa, A Long Way from Anywhere. Ross, who lives in Basalt, spoke to Nathan Heffel. Rob, the Salu Game Reserve is Africa's oldest and largest protected wilderness area. It's larger than Switzerland at over 19,000 square miles. With all that land and wildlife, why is this image of the tiny damselfly, which looks very similar to a dragonfly, I might add, why is that your favorite? It just, for me, was was just very representative of my, my time there, just with the delicate nature of it. It just speaks to me. This part of Africa has rarely been written about, nor photographed. Was that what drew you to do such a large project as this? Well, um, I went there initially really just to do a couple of magazine stories about a couple of people that had taken one of the the hunting blocks in the game reserve and converted it to photographic tourism. And once I spent a bit of time there, I realized how beautiful and diverse the area was. And as you say, nothing really had been... Uh, written about the game reserve since the very early 1980s when Peter Matheson wrote the book Sand Rivers. And given that it's Africa's largest and oldest protected area, just really felt that there was room for a, a quality 
book on the area and and that the that the salute deserved um, more exposure than it's gotten over the last 25 years. Here we are just over six years later, and the salute has consumed most of my time from when I first ended up there and, until till now. Can you give me kind of a, an idea of the scope of this place? Um, well, uh, you pointed out that the, the game reserve is, is larger than Switzerland. Um, an American reference for that is is that the game reserve is larger than Vermont and the states of Vermont and New Hampshire put together. The uh, landscape is incredibly varied. There is certainly, particularly in the north, large areas of open savanna and acacia trees and sort of the, what, what um, I sort of call the Hollywood version of Africa. Yeah. But the Salu also has mountain ranges to the western side and some incredible palm forests some great river valleys, and um, a large portion of the game reserve is actually covered in Miombo woodland, which is it's a mix of a variety of species of trees, and it's much more forested than what the average American thinks of as, uh, as Africa. I mean, I felt that it was important to show the large animals, the small animals, the insects, the landscapes, and of course, in each of those cases, in different seasons and exhibiting different sorts of behavior and at different times of, of day and at night and uh, just so that you would really get a sense of the diversity of what, what is there in, in, in such a, a large area. And, you know, your typical, um, I mean, not that there is a, you know, a formula, but, but many of the books on African wildlife focus very heavily on the, the megafauna and the like the lions and the, and the elephants, lions and elephants and giraffes and zebras and hippos and and I've got all that in there, um, but I really wanted to show much more than that, and uh, you know to give people a true sense of of the place and not just skim over the the highlights if if you consider the megafauna the highlights. Huh. To me, there's a, an awful lot of of pleasure in the in the little stuff. One of your photographs featured in the book is an African fish eagle flying away with a crocodile in its talons. What's the story behind that photo? As I say, it's, it's better to be lucky than smart. And uh, I was out one afternoon with the manager of a camp that I'd been staying at for a while, and we were driving along the Luegu River. And uh, between us and the river, we saw a fish eagle on the ground, and it was obviously picking at something, um, but we really couldn't see all that much. So we, since we were on our own, we stopped the vehicle. We got out, and I grabbed a camera, and uh, we started walking, not directly towards the fish eagle, because that certainly would have startled it, but um, mm. sort of, you know, at a 30-degree angle. And we got, you know, probably within about 50 yards of the eagle or so. And then all of a sudden, it, it took off, had something in its talons, and uh, flew up to a bit of height and then flew out across the, the river. And I, um, just as it took off, I managed to get off three or four frames and we um, moved on. And when we got back to camp, I downloaded the images onto my computer as I regularly did and was just amazed to see that it, it actually was a, a young crocodile that the fish eagle had had obviously caught and uh, was in the, the process of starting to eat. Um, it was just one of those circumstances where, you know, it pays to be in the, the right place at the right time and 
have the equipment with you. And yeah, it really was, was quite a, a remarkable sighting. There's another photo of a, of a lioness watching an impala uh, crouching silently. You're, you're shooting it from behind, and the impala seems unaware. How did you get that photo? You appear to be right behind this lioness. Right. That was in the, uh, in the photographic part of the game reserve where, where the animals are, are fairly accustomed to vehicles. And, and I was out, again, with a driver. We had actually had been watching these lions for a bit, and um, they went off into the shade. And we decided, well, it's pretty hot and sticky. And if they're going to go into the shade, we'll go into the shade and hang out behind the, the lions and see what happened. And... Um, it was just one of those things where we were fortunate. We pulled in behind the line that we got quite close. Huh. And um, shortly after we were sitting there, a bachelor herd of impalas decided to walk by. And in, in single file, about eight or ten of them just walked by straight in front of the lion, completely oblivious to the fact that the lion was there. I mean, they they certainly had to have seen us, but they, they certainly wouldn't have been concerned about us. And the lion was not, at that point, actively hunting. I think if one of them had, if one of the impalas had, had come by and was, was limping or shown some sign that it was weak in some way, the lion might have uh, made a, a go at it. Rob, you, you say you went back over the course of six years and, and you encountered some animals multiple times o- over that, that six-year period. Can you tell me about Grumpy the hippo? Oh, yeah, him. <laughs> um, there was one camp that I spent quite a bit of time at. And generally the hippos, when they're in the water, you know, unless you're very, very close to them, it will just completely ignore you. In fact, it's very difficult to even get any sort of reaction out of them. But this particular hippo... Um, his sort of daytime home, because they're they're nocturnal grazers, so they're out walking around at night, but they hang out in the water during the day, was this pool that was just outside of this one camp. So, you know, we passed him regularly, I mean, sometimes two, three, four times a day. And every single time we either drove by or walked by this particular guy, he'd give us this major rev, and he you know, would sort of make noise and come charging at us. And hippos will never come out of the water and attack you. I mean, they're safe places in the water. Um, so we we knew that, you know, this was all bluff. But this guy was, was using so much negative energy. You know, just it, it was almost like he was harassing us every time we went by. And we just sort of got a, a kick out of it. And so we, we did nickname him Grumpy um, because he certainly was what should uh, people who, who look at this book, who look at your photographs, what do you want them to take away? Um, I think the important thing is to look at this and, and realize that there still are a handful of great wilderness areas out there. There aren't many, and a lot of them, including the Salu, are under pressure from various sides. But it is important that we sense the value in those areas and that we do what needs to be done in order to make sure that those areas continue to survive and thrive. Um, There's a quote, and I used it, it's the only thing I really used twice in the book, Um, but on the the very first page and at the very end of the book, there's a quote from the um, first president of Tanzania, Julius Nereri, and he talks about the fact that 
it is, you know, our obligation to protect these areas for our um, children's grandchildren. And uh, I hope that this book helps to uh, make that happen. Robert Ross speaking with Nathan Heffel. Ross is a freelance photographer in Basalt. His book, The Sulu in Africa, A Long Way from Anywhere, is now available. You can see some of the pictures they discussed at CPRnews.org. I'm Ryan Warner. Thank you for the